Hello there. This is the story of the Old Testament. We are in week 32, August 6th through 12th. We are in 1 Samuel 27 and crossing over into 2 Samuel chapter 5, as well as Psalms 5 through Psalm 9. So this is, uh, we're crossing over. We're going to see the final sad, tragic fall of Saul into uh, uh, the final sin where he, he commits suicide. He, he goes to the witch of Endor. But then we also see out of this horrible tragedy, God has great grace and blessing for his people. He raises up a king, David, who ultimately is pointing forward to Jesus Christ, our Lord. So here we are, 1 Samuel 27 through 2 Samuel 5. Um, let's think about what we can learn from these uh, uh, chapters of Scripture. Here, David flees away. He goes and runs away to the Philistines. And then in chapter 28, we see Saul here. And it's a, it's a really a pathetic picture, isn't it? Saul here is um, wanting to hear from the Lord. Um, but Saul turned his back on the Lord. And the Lord has turned his back on him. Remember, um, very beginning of 1 Samuel in Hannah's prayer and also with um, the judgment against Eli's sons, those who honor the Lord, the Lord will honor. But those who despise him, he will despise. Well, Saul has despised the Lord. And therefore, the Lord despises him. And uh, the Lord does not answer um, uh, Saul. And so what does Saul do? Saul has to turn and go to the uh, a witch, a medium, um, uh, the people that God said, don't ever go there. Uh, don't ever go there. This all turns to wickedness, another further depth of wickedness, wickedness, which just finally confirms his fate, which is going to be suicide um, on the battlefield, which really in a sense summarizes Saul's whole kingship. It started off well, but ultimately, um, it was his own self-destruction. And in some ways, too, I suppose, that summarizes every sinner who ultimately despises the grace that's offered in Jesus, is they have no one to blame ultimately but themselves. They, The grace was offered. Uh, God is able to save all who call upon his name. But they refuse. They despise the Lord. And ultimately, as we see with Saul, um, the Lord hands him over to his own desires, his own uh, longings, and eventually Saul commits suicide. He is he kills himself. He brings about his own destruction. His sin is upon his own head, and that's ultimately what happens, um, sadly, to those who reject Christ. But to all those who believe, to all those who receive and welcome him, um, they are exalted as David was taken from all the way down to the Philistines where he uh, does not do what he really should have done, which is run away to the Philistines. And yet the Lord raises him up and seats him on the throne of Judah and Israel. So let's talk about this. First of all, First Samuel 28. Um, this is by John L. McKay, and it's called Saul without his consultant. 1 Samuel 28.3 provides two pieces of information needed to understand the subsequent narrative. First, the notice of Samuel's death and burial is repeated from 1 Samuel 25.1. 1. 
Saul can no longer consult the prophet for guidance. The second part of 1 Samuel 28.3 anticipates verse 1 Samuel 28.9. At an earlier stage, Saul had acted in accordance with Mosaic law and had purged the land of those who practiced the occult. This was prevalent in surrounding nations, but divinely prescribed as an abomination in Israel. A medium claimed to be able to conjure up and consult the spirit of a dead person, perhaps using ventriloquism to convince the gullible that they had contacted the departed. A necromancer, a knowing one, claimed to possess knowledge through access to the spirits of the dead. As the narrative later reveals, Saul's efforts in dealing with this phenomenon, as in other expressions of his commitment to the standards of the Lord, fall short of total success. The Philistines abandoned their earlier strategy of launching raids into the hill country of Judah and instead marched north to seize control of the valley of Jezreel, a key trade route running east to west and itself rich agricultural land. In that open terrain, they can deploy their chariot forces to good effect and so drive a wedge between Saul and the northernmost tribes. At first, the invaders had mustered at Aphek, the northernmost Philistine settlement, but here they have advanced a further 44 miles to Shunem. So chronologically, this incident fits in after 1 Samuel 29. Shunem is on the north side of the valley, while Geboa is on the south, about seven and a half miles away. When Saul sees the Philistine positions, he realizes the situation is grim and has a premonition of the outcome. In the mountainous territory, the Israelite infantry might hold their own, but this is open country. Afraid echoes Saul, and along with his heart heavy, excuse me, and along with his heart trembled greatly, is the first of a number of indications of fearfulness in the chapter. In the ancient world, military commanders consulted the gods before venturing into battle. However, when Saul inquires of the Lord, he meets with total divine silence. None of the three recognized modes of divine communication function because the Lord refuses to speak to one who has already been rejected because of his disobedience. Saul is seeking not a way back to God, but a way to avert impending defeat. At his wit's end, Saul decides to use the services of a woman who is a medium. Such a person would conduct seances in which it was claimed that the spirits of the dead could be contacted and the greater knowledge they were credited with might be disclosed. Saul's decision to use the services of a medium violates even his own shallow understanding of the religion of the Lord and marks the final step in his downfall. Saul's servants are army officers, two of whom subsequently accompany him on his visit. They ascertain that there is a surviving medium at Endor, possibly a Canaanite enclave in the territory of Manasseh. To get there from his camp, Saul must pass 6.2 miles through enemy-controlled territory. To escape the notice of the enemy, as well as his own troops, and also to deceive the medium, the king removes his royal robes. With two companions, he makes his way to the medium by night, which was possibly the usual time for seances, but would also help conceal his movements. He asks the woman to divine for me by a spirit. Divine is the most general term for engaging in occult practices, and Saul is requesting a seance during which he will name a specific individual to be called up from the realm of the dead. The woman suspects her unknown visitor might be an agent acting for Saul, and so, without conceding that she could do what, she, what he has asked, she reminds them of the royal policy. Cut off implies a death sentence, as required by Mosaic law, and is a stronger term than the earlier put or remove, which would still leave open the possibility of expulsion. 
The medium does not want her alleged ability to contact the dead to lead to her joining them prematurely. However, Saul will not accept her refusal, and to reassure her, he swears an oath. Although, as the Lord lives is a standard Israelite expression, its use in this context reveals how thoroughly confused Saul's thinking has become. It is sheer blasphemy to employ the divine name to guarantee immunity to one engaging in practices contrary to divine law. Possibly the manner in which Saul speaks and the assumption that he can indemnify individuals convinces the woman that she is dealing with no ordinary visitor. Whom shall I bring up for you, concedes that she can conjure up spirits. In his reply, Saul places Samuel first for emphasis. Samuel is the prophet who had conveyed Saul's call to him and represented the certainties of the past on which Saul had turned his back. The text is reticent about the procedures the medium uses, indeed that she uses any at all, not just to avoid undue interest in the occult, but also because on this occasion, her techniques do not contribute to the result. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. Her shriek is an inarticulate gasp of astonishment at an occurrence outside her control or experience. In light of her description of the apparition in 1 Samuel 28.13, it is improbable that she recognizes Samuel at this point. However, despite her fright, the medium has been thinking hard, and the unexpected nature of the apparition leads her to identify Saul and accuse him of deception by not disclosing himself to her. Saul is as excited as the medium is disturbed. Do not be afraid is a perfunctory attempt to allay her fears, because he does not want the seance to end prematurely. What do you see reveals that at this stage, Saul can see nothing himself. The language of the medium's reply is not totally clear, nor is our understanding of what is taking place. I see a God coming up out of the earth, presumably means that from her heathen perspective, the woman sees an imposing, preternatural figure that she takes to be divine. Up out of the earth reflects the belief that Sheol, the realm of the departed, is located under the world. Saul still cannot see anything and has to ask, what is his appearance? The medium's description is sufficiently distinctive for Saul to identify the figure as Samuel. An old man describes Samuel in terms of human frailty, and he is wearing a robe, his characteristic dress from boyhood, that played a significant role in Saul's rejection. Perhaps at this point, Samuel becomes visible to Saul, who greets him with all deference and respect. There are no barriers to communication between Samuel and Saul, and the medium plays no part in their conversation. Indeed, the later, indeed the latter came to Saul. Uh, oh, excuse me, hang on here. Let's see. Indeed, the later came to Saul opens up the possibility that she is not present at this point. Samuel upbraids Saul because he has disturbed him by disrupting his mode of existence in the realm of the dead. Saul justifies his action on the ground of his great distress. He is at a loss to know how to handle the Philistine threat. More significantly, there is no confession of wrongdoing or past rebellion. Saul merely states, God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Though turned away is the same term as departed, this does not spur Saul to reflect on why God has not responded, either by prophets or by dreams. There is no mention of the Urim, because, perhaps because it raises memories of Saul's massacre of the priests at Nob. But Saul has summoned Samuel because he expects him to tell me what I shall do. Why then do you ask me is not an encouraging response from Samuel. Once more, the use of ask incorporates a play on Saul's name. 
Compared to Saul's single mention of God in 1 Samuel 28.15, Samuel refers to the Lord seven times in his reply. He has no doubt about the Lord's control of events. Repeating the verb used by Saul in 1 Samuel 28.15, Samuel uncompromisingly emphasizes that the Lord has turned away from you in covenant rejection. Become your enemy spells out that the rebel could expect no help from the divine overlord or from Samuel as his spokesman. Samuel provides Saul with no new information, instead stressing that the existing situation is in accordance with what Samuel had during his life revealed to Saul. The Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, repeats the verdict Samuel delivered in 1 Samuel 13, 14, and especially 1 Samuel 15, 28, with the specific addition of the identity of the neighbor, David. Saul's circumstances are the product of his past disobedience, echoing 1 Samuel 15, 19. The same verb is used in both, did not carry out, and the Lord has done this thing, leaking the offense and the retribution imposed by God. This thing is probably God's refusal to respond to Saul. The one who has abandoned God is abandoned by him. God has withdrawn not only prophetic guidance, but also support for Saul's kingdom. Defeat awaits king and people alike. Furthermore, Saul and his sons will die the following day when they join Samuel in Sheol. The king appointed to defeat the Philistines will die, leaving Israel dominated by the Philistines. Presumably, Saul had maintained a kneeling position before Samuel, but on hearing this inexorable declaration, he collapses full length on the ground. The terror-stricken king had been hoping against hope that Samuel would indicate some way to avert the looming disaster, but he has instead reinforced its certainty and immediacy, and then he apparently fades from the scene and introduces a further factor in beyond the crushing mental blow. Saul is also physically drained and exhausted, for he had eaten nothing all day and all night, perhaps to obtain divine favor by obtaining, abstaining from food or through loss of appetite due to his anxiety. In Saul's predicament, forsaken by God and Samuel, it is the medium who acts with compassion. Looking at the king lying on the ground, she saw that he was terrified, an intense and debilitating emotional reaction that overwhelms an individual and leaves him unable to function appropriately. Since she has risked her life to comply with his demands, he ought now to act on her advice and eat to regain his strength. The medium's practical humanity is no doubt tinged with circumspect self-preservation. What would happen to her if the king died in her house? Saul's initial refusal is overcome by the insistence of his two attendants and the woman who urged him. Eventually, he gets up from the ground to sit on the bed, probably here a couch-like structure with a frame, not merely a mat on the floor. The woman has a fattened calf in the stall in her house. She kills it and presumably boils or roasts some of its meat, a special delicacy in those days. Though she acts quickly in preparing it and baking bread, it is no mere snack she provides, but a meal fit for a king. So for an hour or two, Saul sits on the bed, brooding over what has occurred. After Saul and his men ate, they rose and went away that night. The scene conducted in darkness ends in darkness. The God who is light had not blessed Saul, who was left to face his inevitable end the following day. That is a very sobering reality, isn't it? And that's intentional um, <clears throat> for us to see what happens when the Lord hands us over to our own desires, to our own um, sin? And we see there in Saul um, just the fall that happens and the sadness um, 
what happens when we reject his grace. Well, we know what happens at the end. Uh, David saves, right? The, uh, uh, he defeats the, the Amalekites. He saves his wives. Saul dies. And then when Saul he- David hears about Saul and Don- Jonathan's death, he shows genuine remorse. He's anointed king. Um, we see the, the bloody civil war that kind of takes place between the house of Saul and the house of David. Um, Ishbosheth is murdered. And eventually in chapter 5, David is anointed king of all Israel. Now, eventually, there's this interesting story here in verse 22, and it says, And the Philistines came up yet again and spread out in the valley of Rephaim. And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, You shall not go up, go around to their rear, and come against them opposite the balsam trees. And when when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself, for then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. And David did as the Lord commanded him and struck down the Philistines from Geba to Gezer. This is a sermon from Spurgeon on this one verse, 2 Samuel 5, 24. Um, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees, then rouse yourself. For then the Lord has gone out before you to strike down the army of the Philistines. This is a sermon called The Sound in the Mulberry Trees by Spurgeon. David had just fought the Philistines in this very valley and gained a signal victory so that he said, the Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the breach of waters. The Philistines had come up in great hosts and had brought their gods with them that like Israel, when the ark of the Lord was brought into their midst, they might feel quite sure of victory. However, by the help of God, David easily put them to rout, burned their images in the fire and obtained a glorious victory over them. Note, however, that when they came a second time against David, David did not go up to fight them without inquiring of the Lord. Once he had been victorious, he might have said, as many of us have said, in fact, in other cases, I shall be victorious again. I may rest quite sure that if I have triumphed once, I shall triumph yet again. Wherefore should I go and seek at the Lord's hands? Not so now David. He had gained one victory by the strength of the Lord. He would not venture upon another until he had ensured the same. He went and asked the sacred oracle, Shall I go up again against them? And when he was informed that he was not immediately to march against them, but to encamp so as to surprise them at the mulberry trees, he did not demur a single moment to the mandate of God. And when he was bidden to wait until he should hear the sound in the tops of the mulberry trees before he went to fight, he was not in an ill haste to rush to battle at once, but he tarried till the mulberry trees began to sing at the top by reason of the wind that rushed along the leaves." He would wait until God's sign was given. He said, I will not lift my spear nor more my hand till God hath bidden me do it, lest I should go to war at my own charges and lose all I have obtained. My brethren, let us learn from David to take no steps without God. The last time you moved or went into another business or changed your situation in life, you asked God's help and then did it, and you were blessed in the doing of it. You have been up to this time a successful man. You have always sought God, but do not think that the stream of providence necessarily runs in a continuous current. Remember, you may tomorrow, without seeking God's advice, venture upon a step which you will regret but once, and that will be until you die. You have been wise hitherto. It may be because you have trusted in the Lord with all your heart and have not learned and have not leaned to your own understanding. You have said, like David, let us inquire of the Lord. And like Jehoshaphat, who said to Ahab, I will not go up until I have inquired of the Lord. And you have not to ask priests of Baal, but you have said, Is there not here one prophet of the Lord that I may inquire at his hands? Now, keep on in the same way. 
Do not, I beseech you, go before the cloud. If providence tarries, tarry till providence comes. Never go before it. He goes on a fool's errand who goes before God, but he walks in a blessed path who sees the footsteps of providence and reads the map of scripture and so discovers, this is the way wherein I am to walk. This may be imputed to someone here. I thought I would begin with it, for it may be I have some young man here who is about unadvisedly to take a step which may be his ruin temporarily. I beseech him if he loves the Lord. I speak to none but those who are already Christians. I beseech him not to venture until he has sought counsel of God, and unless he has a firm conviction that he is doing it merely for his own advantage, but to help him in serving his God the better. Unless he can be sure that he has God's approval of his steps, let me, by the mistake that many have made, by the mischief that he will do himself unless he listens to me, let me beseech him to stop and not take so much as one half a step or lift his foot until he has sought of God and has had the answer go up against them. Thus I have introduced the text, but now I would refer to it in another way altogether. David was not to go to battle until he had heard the sound of a rustling in the tons of the mulberry trees. There was a calm, perhaps, and God's order to David was, you are not to begin to fight until the wind begins rustling through the tops of the mulberry trees. Or as the rabbis have it, and it is a very pretty conceit if it be true, the footsteps of angels walking along the tops of the mulberry trees make them rustle. That was the sign for them to fight, when God's cherubim were going with them, when they should come, who can walk through the clouds and fly through the air, led by the great captain himself, walking along the mulberry trees, and so make a rustle by their celestial footsteps. How true that may be, I cannot tell. My remark is only this, that there are certain signs which ought to be indications to us of certain duties. I shall use the verse in this way. First, there are certain special duties which are not duties to everybody, but only to some people. If we wish to know whether we are to perform these duties, we must seek signs concerning them, and not go and rush into a duty to which we are not called, unless we get a sign, even as David got the rustling among the mulberry leaves. And then I should use it in the second place, thus, there are certain duties which are common to all of us. But when we see some sign of God's Holy Spirit being in motion or some other signs, these are seasons when we ought to be more than ever active and more than ever earnest in the service of our master. First, then, in regard to special duties, I shall confine myself, I think, to one. The office of the ministry is a special duty. I do not believe, as some do, that it is the business of every one of us to preach. I believe it is the business of a great many people who do preach to hold their tongues. I think that if they had waited until God had sent them, they would have been at home now. And there would be, and there be some men who are not fit to edify a doorpost, who yet think that if they could but once enter the pulpit, they would attract a multitude. They conceive preaching to be just the easiest thing in all the world. And while they have not power to speak three words correctly, and have not any instruction from on high, and never were intended for the pulpit, for the mere sake of the honor or the emolument, they rush into the ministry." There are hundreds of men in the ministry starving for want of bread and entirely unsuccessful. And I believe in regard to some of them that the best thing they could do would be to open a grocer's shop. They would be doing more to serve God and to serve the church if they would take a business and preach now and then as they had time to study or else give it up altogether and let somebody else come and preach to the people who had something to tell them. For alas, alas, a preacher who has nothing to say will not only do no good, but will do a great deal of harm. 
The preacher, the people who whore him get disgusted at the very name of a place of worship, and they only look at it as a kind of stocks, where they are to sit for an hour with their feet fast, quiet and still, listening to a man who is saying nothing because he has nothing to say. I would not advise all of you to be preachers. I do not believe God ever intended that you should. If God had intended all his people to be preachers, I wonder how he even in his wisdom could have found them all congregations because there are all preachers where there are no, because where are, excuse me, because where all preachers, where the hearers, where were the hearers? No, I believe the office of the ministry, though not like that of the priesthood as to any particular sanctity or any particular power that we possess is yet like the priesthood in this, that no man ought to take it to himself, save he that is called thereunto, as was Aaron. No man has any right to address a congregation on things spiritual unless he believes that God has given him a special calling to the work, and unless he has also in due time received certain seals which attest his ministry as being the ministry of God. The rightly ordained minister is ordained not by the laying on of bishops or presbyters' hands, but by the Spirit of God himself, whereby the power of God is communicated in the preaching of the word. There may be some here who will say, how am I to know whether I am called to preach? My brethren, you will find it out by and by, I dare say. And if you are sincerely desirous to know when you are in the path of duty and endeavoring to preach, I must bid you do as David did. He noted the rustling in the leaves of the mulberry trees. And I must have you notice certain signs. Do you want to know whether you can preach? Ask yourself this question. Can I pray? When I have been called upon in the prayer meeting, have I been enabled to put my words together and has God helped me in this matter? So far, so good. Well, then I will try it. Go and try. I will preach in the street, for instance. Suppose nobody listens to me. Suppose I go and take a room or go to a chapel and nobody comes to hear. Well, there is no rustling among the mulberry trees. I had better stop. Suppose I go to my wife and children and take a text and just preach a little wee bit to them and to the neighbors. Suppose after I have preached to them, I should feel that they could preach great deal better to me. There is no rustling among the mulberry trees, and I had better give it up. And suppose if after having preached for some time, I hear of none who have been brought to Christ. There is no rustling among the mulberry trees. I think the best thing I could do is let somebody else try. For suppose I had not been called to the ministry, it would have been a fearful thing for me to have occupied the watchman's place without having received the watchman's commission. He that should take upon himself to be a policeman and go and do the work of arresting others without having received a commission must be in danger of being taken up himself for being a deceiver. And it may be, if I had not been called to the ministry and had no seal of it, I had better leave it alone lest I go without God's commission, and that would never answer my person purpose to begin with it without ha his having sent me. For if he have not sent me, it may be I shall break down in my errand and do no good. I do not ask whether you are much instructed or learned or all that. I do not need to ask you, for I do not care about it myself. But I ask you these questions. Have you tried to address a Sabbath school? Have you gained the attention of the children? Have you tried to address a few people when they have been gathered together? Have you found that they would listen to you after you had preached? Had you any evidence and any sign that you would lead, that would lead you to believe that souls were blessed under you? Did any of the saints of God who were spiritually minded tell you that their souls were fed by your sermon? Did you hear of any sinner convinced of sin? Have you any reason to believe that you have had a soul converted under you? If not, if you will take one advice for what is good for you, and I believe it is advice which God's Holy Spirit would have me give you, you had better give it up. 
You will make a very respectable Sunday school teacher. You will do very well in, in a great many other ways. But unless these things have been known by you, unless you have these evidences, you may say you have been called and all that. I don't believe it. If you had been called to preach, there would have been some evidence and some sign of it. I remember two years ago, some man wrote to me a note telling me that it had been said to his heart and God the Holy Spirit had revealed it to him that I was to let him preach in this chapel. Well, I just wrote to him and told him that was a one-sided revelation and that as soon as ever God revealed it to me that I was to let him preach here, then he should. But until then, I did not see that the revelation was quite a square one. Why should it be revealed to him and not be revealed to me? I have to know I have heard no more of him, and I have not had it revealed to me either, so that I do not suppose he will make his appearance here. I say this because, though to a great many of it of you it would be nothing at all, there are a large number of young men here who preach. I thank God for them, for anyone who is able to preach. But I will thank God to stop those who cannot preach, because if they go about to preach and have not the ability and God has not sent them, they will just make fools of themselves though that you should be, should not be greatly surprised at because they may not be far off already, but they will make the very gospel itself come into contempt. If they profess to preach who have not the call from God's spirit, when they begin to talk, they will bring more scandal upon the cross by a rash defense of it than would have come if they had left it alone. Now take care about that. I would discourage none. I would say to every young man who has a grain of ability and believes he has been called of God and everyone who has really been blessed, so far as I can help you, I will help you. I will do so to the very uttermost if you need my help. And I pray God Almighty to bless you and make you more and more abundantly useful for the church needs many pastors and evangelists. But if there is no soul converted under you, if you are not qualified to preach at all, you shall have my equally earnest prayers for you that God may speed you. And I shall pray for you in this way, that God will speed you by making you hold your tongue. I waited till I heard the sound among the mulberry trees, else I had been uncalled and unsent. David waited. He would not go to the battle till he had heard the signal from on high, which was the signal for the battle and the signal of the commencement of warfare. But now, my brethren, I come to something more practical to many of you. You do not profess to be called to preach. There are, certain special, there are certain duties belonging to all Christians which are to be specially practiced at special seasons. First, concerning the Christian church at large, the whole of the Christian church should be very prayerful, always seeking the unction of the Holy One to rest upon their hearts, that the kingdom of Christ may come and that his will be done on earth even as it is done in heaven. But there are times when God seems to favor Zion, when there are great moments made in the church, when revivals are commenced, when men are raised up whom God blesses, that ought to be like to you a sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. We ought then to be doubly prayerful, doubly earnest, wrestling more at the throne than we have been wont to do. I think this is just the time that demands your extraordinary and special prayers. I look upon that great movement in the Church of England, the preaching on Sabbath evenings in Exeter Hall as a sign of rustling, a kind of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. My brethren, I could pity the man that would be for one moment envious, though a thousand such places should be full to the doors. I could cry out to God for mercy on the man who could be so great a sinner against humanity and against the souls of men as to wish that it would not prosper. With all my heart, I pray that God may bless it, and I exhort you just now, as there appears to be a move in the right direction, now that some of the ministers are more thoroughly roused up than they used to be, now that the ordinance of preaching is more honored, now that there is a spirit of hearing poured out amongst the people, 
I beseech you now, let your prayers be doubly earnest. Do as David was commanded to do. Rise yourself and bestir yourself, not in a spirit of envy, not in a spirit of strife. Do not bestir yourself, lest the church of England shall beat dissenters. No, brethren, let us each bestir ourselves, that we may beat the devil. Let us each be earnest, and let us each, when we see a movement in any section of the church, hold up the hands of faithful men, and pray to God that if they are not faithful, they may be made right, but that as far as they are right, they may be have a blessing. I think the church of Christ has lived to a glorious period. I really think the day to which we have lived now is a day that ought to gladden the eyes of many of God's people. So far from being now, as I was a little time ago in a gloomy frame about the worshipers of the church, I seem to think I have lived now to a happy era. Even the holy Whitfield himself never stirred up such a revival of religion as God has been pleased to give now. Not by his preaching did he stir up a host of bishops and clergymen to come forth and preach to the poor. God has been pleased of late to wake up the churches far and near. I hear the noise amongst the mulberry trees. Everywhere I hear of the doctrine of grace being made more prominent and the preaching of the gospel becoming more earnest, more energetic, and more full of the Spirit. We have seen in our midst some called out of our church whom God has blessed in the preaching of the word. There is in many places, and I allude especially to the Church of England just now, the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. Now, my brethren, is the time for us to bestir ourselves? Oh, let us cry to God more earnestly. Let our prayer meetings be filled with men who come full of vehement petitions. Let our private altars be constantly kept burning, causing the smoke of prayer to ascend, and that our closets be, be occupied by earnest intercession. Bestir thyself. There is a sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. That is concerning the church at large. The same truth holds good of any particular congregation. One Sabbath day, the minister preached with great unction. God clothed him with power. He seemed like John the Baptist in the wilderness, crying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He spake with all the earnestness of a man who was about to die. He so spake that the people trembled. A visible thrill passed through the audience. Every eye was fixed, and the tears seemed to bedew every cheek. Men and women rose up from the sermon, saying, Surely God was in this place, and we have felt his presence. What ought a Christian man to say as he retires from the house of God? He should say, I have heard this day the sound of the leaves of the mulberry trees. I saw the people earnest. I marked the minister speaking mightily, God having touched his lips with a live coal from off the altar. I saw the tear in every eye. I saw the deep, rapt attention of many who were careless. There were some young people there that looked as if they had been impressed. Their countenances seemed to show that there was a work doing. Now, what should I do? The first thing I will do, I will bestir myself. But how shall I do it? Why, I will go home this day, and I will wrestle in prayer more earnestly than I have been wont to do, that God will bless the minister and multiply the church. Well, what next? Where do I sit? Was there a young woman in my pew that seemed impressed? When I go this evening, I will look out for her. I have heard the sound of the leaves of the mulberry trees, and I will bestir myself. And if I see her there, I will speak a word to her. Or, what is more, if I hear another sermon like it, and I see any who seem to be impressed, I will try to find them out. For I know that two words from a private person are often better than fifty from a minister. So that if I have seen a young man impressed, I will touch him on his elbow and say, You seemed as if you enjoyed this sermon. Yes, I liked it very well. And do you like spiritual things? Who can tell? I may be made the means of his conversion. At all events, I shall have this sweet consolation to go to bed with, that I heard the sound of the leaves of the mulberry trees. 
And as soon as I heard it, I bestirred myself that I might serve my God and be the means of winning souls from hell. But alas, my brethren, much of the seed we sow seems to be lost for want of watering. Many an impressive sermon seems to lose much of its force because it is not followed up as it should be. God's purposes, I know, are answered. His word does not return unto him void. Still, I think we might sometimes ask ourselves, have we not been too dilatory, too neglectful in not availing ourselves of favorable times and seasons when the power of the Spirit has been in our midst and when we should have looked upon it for the sign, for for the signal, for more strenuously exerting ourselves in the service of our Master? The same I might say of any time of general sickness or any time of plague or cholera or sudden death. There are times when the cholera is raging through our streets. The people are all trembling. They are afraid to die. Mark, that is the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. It is the business of you and I to bestir ourselves when people are by any means led to serious thought, when God is walking through the land and smiting down first one and then another, and the minds of the people are all on tiptoe concerning what the end will shall be. When there has been some alarming fire, when a sudden death has taken place in the street or in the court or in a house, it is the Christian's business to seize upon the time and to improve it for his master. Now, said the Puritans during the great plague of London, when the hireling parish priests had fled from their churches, now is our time to preach. And all through that terrible time, when the carts filled with the dead went through the streets overgrown with grass, these strong-minded Puritans occupied the pulpits and boldly preached the word of God. Brethren, that is what we should do whenever we see a time more favorable than another for telling sinners of the wrath to come. Let us seize it. Just as the merchant looks out for every turn of the market, for every rise and every fall, just as the farmer looks out for a good season for sowing or planting or mowing, let us look out for the best times for seeking to do good. Let us plow deep while sluggards sleep, and let us labor as much as possible in the best season to make hay while the sun is shining and serve our God when we hear the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees. And now permit me to go back to a thought I have given you. Keep the same idea in view in regard to every individual you meet with. If you have a drunken neighbor, it is very seldom you can ever say a word to him. His wife is ill. She is sick and dying. Poor fellow. He is sober this time. He seems to be a bit impressed. He is anxious about his wife and anxious about himself. Now is your time. Now for the good word. Put it in well. Now is your opportunity. There is a great swearer, but he seems by some terrible providence or other to become a little abashed, and he is not so profane as he used to be. You should do as the ancient slingers did. If they saw a warrior lift his helmet, if they would put the stone before he could get the helmet down again. So if you see a man a little impressed and he is open to conviction, do what you can as God gives you opportunity. And if any of your acquaintance have been in the house of God, if you have induced them to go there, and you think there is some little good doing, but you do not know, take are of that little. I don't know. Take care of that little, I guess is what Spurgeon was saying. It may be God hath used as, us as a foster mother to bring up his child so that this little one may be brought up in the faith and this newly converted soul may be strengthened and edified. But I'll tell you, many of you Christians do a deal of mischief by what you say when going home. A man once said that when he was a lad, he heard a certain sermon from a minister and felt deeply impressed under it. Tears stole down his cheeks, and he thought within himself, I will go home to pray. On the road, he fell into the company of two members of the church. One of them began saying, Well, how did you enjoy the sermon? The other said, I do not think he was quite sound on such a point. Well, said the other, I thought he was rather off his guard. 
or something of that sort, and one pulled one part of the minister's sermon to pieces and another the other. Until, said the young man, before I had gone many yards with him, I had forgotten all about it, and all the good I thought I had received seemed swept away by these two men, who seemed afraid lest I should get away, get any hope, for they were just pulling that sermon to pieces that would have brought me on my knees. How often have we done the same? People will say, what did you think of that sermon? I gently tell them nothing at all, and if there is any fault in it, and very likely there is, it is better not to speak of it, for some may get good from it. I do believe that many a sermon that seems nothing but perfect nonsense from the beginning to the end may be the means of salvation. You and I may have more knowledge of the scriptures. We may be more instructed and enlightened. We may say, dear me, I do not know how people can hear that. You may think people are not able to hear it, but they are saved. That is all you have to look after. A primitive minister has sometimes quite puzzled you. You have said, I dare say the good man understands himself, but I do not understand him. And yet he has got all those people with their attention fixed. And you have seen souls brought to God under the sermon, and therefore you must not say anything about it. You are obliged to say, well, it was not the sermon for me. Never mind that, it was the sermon for someone else. It is the best way for you not to hear that man again, but let him go on. He will get some people to do good too, I dare say. I just throw this in, in an interjaculatory way. If you have got hold of people's ears or a bit of their ear, if you have got them to say, I think I will come again, do not put in any word that may keep them away, but bestir yourselves to be the means of saving souls instrumentally when you hear these signals from on high. And I think, my brethren, I must expressly make an appeal to you in regard to your own children. There are certain times in the history of my own beloved children when they seem more impressible than at other seasons. I beseech you never lose the opportunity. Salvation is of God from first to last, but yet it is your business to use all the means, just as if you could save them. Now there are times when your son, who is generally very gay and wild, comes home from chapel, and there is a sort of solemnity about him you do not often see. When you see that, get a word with him. Sometimes your little daughter comes home. She has heard something she understands, something that seems to have struck her thoughts. Do not laugh at her. Do not despise that little beginning. Who can tell? It may be the sound in the tops of the mulberry trees. Your son, a boy of 14 or 15, is often coming home apparently deeply interested. And sometimes you have thought, well, I do not know. The boy seems as if he listened rather more than others do. I think there must be a good work in him. Do not by any harshness of yours put a rough hand on that tender plant. Do not say to him, for instance, if he commits a little fault, I thought there was some good thing in you, but there is no piety in you at all, or else you would not have done it. Do not say that. That is a damper at once. Remember, if he be a child of God, he has his faults as well as any other boy. Therefore, do not be too harsh or severe with him. But if you find the slightest good, say, there is the sound in the tops of the mulberry trees. There may be ever a faint rustling. Never mind. That is my opportunity. Now will I be more earnest about my child's salvation. And now will I seek to teach him, if I can, more fully the way of God. I will try to get him alone and talk to him. The tender plant, if he be of God, it is sure to grow. But let me take care to be the instrument of fostering it, and let me take my boy aside and say to him, Well, my son, have you learnt something of the evil of sin? And if he says yes, and I find he has a little hope and faith, though it may be a rather superficial work, let me not despise it, but let me remember, I was once grace in the blade, and though grace in the ear now, I would never have been grace in the ear if I had not been grace in the blade." I must not despise the blades because they are not ears. I must not kill the lambs because they are not sheep. For where would my sheep come from if I killed all the lambs? 
I must not despise the weakest of the saints. For where should I get the advanced saints from if I will watch for the, if, if I put the weak ones out of the covenant and tell them they are not the children of God? No, I will watch for the least indication, the least sign of any good thing towards the Lord God of Israel. And I will pray God that these signs may not be delusive, not like the smoke that is driven away, nor like the early cloud in the morning dew, but the abiding signs of grace begun, which shall be afterwards grace complete. And lastly, not to detain you longer, Christian, in regard to yourself, there is a great truth here. There are times, you know, when thou hearest the sound of a goings in the tops of the mulberry trees. You have a peculiar power in prayer. The Spirit of God gives you joy and gladness. The Scripture is open to you. The promises are applied. You walk in the light of God's countenance and His candle shines about your head. You have peculiar freedom and liberty and devotion. Perhaps you've got less to attend to in the world and more closeness of communion with Christ than you used to have. Now is the time. Now, when you hear the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, now is the time to bestir yourselves. Now is the time to get rid of any evil habit that still remains. Now is the season in which God the Spirit is with you. But spread your sail. Remember what you sometimes sing. I can only spread the sail. Thou, Lord, must breathe the auspicious gale. Be sure you have the sail up. Do not miss the gale for want of preparation for it. Seek help of God that you may be more earnest in duty when made more strong in faith, that you may be more constant in prayer when you have more liberty at the throne, that you may be more holy in your conversation whilst you live more closely with Christ. And oh, with regard to some here who tonight or this morning or at any other time have been led to think, oh, that I might be saved. If you have any thought about it, any serious impression, I pray that God the Holy Spirit may enable you to look upon the impression that is made upon you as the sound of a going in the tops of the mulberry trees, that you may be led to bestir yourselves and seek God more earnestly. If God the Spirit has convinced you in any degree, if he has impressed you, if he has made you tremble, if he has sent you home to pray, now I beseech you be in earnest about your own soul. And if God has awakened you so far, look upon that as a token of his grace and say, now or never. It may be that this big wave will help you over the great bar that is before the harbor's mouth. This may be the tide which taken at the flood leads on to heaven. Oh, that God might help you to take it at the flood, that you might be carried safely over your convictions and your troubles and landed safely in the blessed haven of faith. That haven which is protected by the atonement of Christ and by the bar of everlasting love. God bless you for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, there we go. I thank you for listening to that long sermon, but it was a, it's a good sermon um, and a, an interesting application of that text to us. And it's always good every now and then to hear from, to hear from Spurgeon. Well, thanks for listening to this. I look forward to being with you next week. Take care. God bless. <laughs>